0: This is the Apex United Methodist Church Podcast. Friends, our scripture this morning is going to come from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, or the, the blue Bibles right in front of you, uh, it'll be on New Testament page 4. So it's in New Testament page 4 in your pew Bible. We'll also have it up on the screens, Matthew 5. 17 through 20, and as as we take a minute to find it, I want to tell us a little bit about the series that we're going to be um, stepping into today. Our new series is called Movement of God, and here's what we believe. Um, We believe that God is always and has always been on the move. Scripture tells us of a God who has been on the move right from the beginning from the beginning of time, from the beginning of creation. um, We see God on the move through scripture. We see God on the move um, through history, and even today in our communities, in our church, in our world, we see God on the move. But how do we know um, when it's God? How do we know when we're being called and invited to be part of something bigger than ourselves, to be part of something that God is doing? Well through scripture, we're going to spend some time identifying ways um, for us to know that. And we're going to utilize something that, that I hold very near and dear to my heart. And that is um, the witness of the history of our church. So one of, one of the great truths in the church is that um, we are blessed with great witness, with tradition. And, and we can look back through the pages of scripture and we can look back to how our church was formed to see how people captured what God was doing and actually became a part of it. Ordinary people like you and me who became part of something much bigger than themselves. And I I can't really find a better framework um, for that conversation than the history of our church. And not, you know, apex UMC, but the M in that, the Methodist um, church, the history of the people called Methodists. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to Take time to study scripture, to learn about the history of our church. Um, Part of my reality is that you know I took a break from church for a couple years in high school. When I came back to church, I came back through a Methodist church and I fell in love. And the the reality is that I didn't know why until I got to seminary and actually started to learn about the rich history and tradition of Methodism. So whether you've been a Methodist your whole life, and this is all going to be old news to you, or this is your first day um, in a Methodist church, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You're going to learn a little bit about who we are. Now, I want to begin with Jesus in Matthew's gospel, because Matthew chapter five um, begins Jesus' first great big proclamation in Matthew's gospel. It's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It lasts for several chapters, and it's a lot of teaching from Jesus, and it's like his first big teaching that he gave um, to the people that he was with, and so in this teaching, um, Jesus reminded God's people that he wasn't necessarily there to start something new, but to point to what God was doing and to show how through him, God was fulfilling part of God's purpose for the people of God and ultimately for the church. And so this is Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophet's I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And one of um, the beautiful things about our history, in our movement, is that it started much in the same way that many movements start. Oftentimes, movements start as something very simple and sincere, with a single person with a conviction who then lives into that conviction, is followed um, by another, and then it just grows exponentially. The same was true for Wesley. Wesley felt a call on his life to live a disciplined life, pursuing holiness, pursuing Jesus, and it was out of his obedience and faithfulness to that that this movement kind of happened and grew. But what was important to know is that when Wesley began um, this call in his ministry, he had no intention of establishing a new church. He was part of the Church of England, and his desire was really to create change from the inside. So as we think about, um, as we look to to movements of God and how we might see them and understand them, you know, one of the truths that that I feel we see when we study these things is that oftentimes if it is a movement of God, um, we will be pushed more to reform what is instead of dividing to create our own new thing. Now I think it's kind of ironic to start there, and to be talking about history in the Church of England, and saying that you know we, we reform from within, we don't break off to start anything new. Anybody know any of the history of how the Church of England happened? Yeah, it's great. It's wonderful, great history. King Henry VIII was married to Catherine of Aragon, I believe, and he'd been married to her for 20 some odd years, and uh, didn't have a son. Um, from that and decided he wanted you know, to be married to someone else and he was a defender of the Roman Catholic Church. He was a defender of the Pope in a time when there was a lot of reformation going on. So he asked the Pope if he could get his marriage The Pope said no. So King Henry VIII said, okay, well, I'll start my own church, the Church of England, and I'm going to be the Pope. I'll be the head of the church. Now, it's interesting that prior to that moment, he'd been married like 24 years and after that moment he had five marriages in the next ten years. And they all didn't work out that great. <laughs> you can read more about that on your own. So it's ironic to say that oftentimes, you know, in, in this in this situation, but it's important because Wesley would have known all of that history. Wesley would have known how his church came about the great split that happened from the the Catholic Church, the Church of England. And and here's what was happening around the turn of of the 18th century, so early 1700s. There were were really two schools of religious thought that were prominent throughout the day. The first was called deism, deism, okay? And this was a view of God and creation um, based on reason. Uh, great scientists and philosophers, many of whom, if I said them by name, you might recognize uh, Sir Isaac Newton um, being one of them, a great scientist, John Locke, a great philosopher. Maybe you've read or interacted with their work. Um, They felt that there was no conflict between their observations and conclusions and their faith. Okay, And, and a lot of talk of what was called enlightenment, enlightenment started to come into the land. And and people started to say, okay, well, we should engage our faith. We should engage our faith with what we're learning about the world. We should ask difficult questions about our faith, all of those things. All of that's great. But of course, when you have one prevailing thought over here, of course, you're going to have another one on this side, right? And so what happened was people felt that as uh, people were engaging more with broader understandings of God, that there was a letting go of An awe of God such that it would, you know, require you to live a strict and rigorous, you know, faithful lifestyle, one that was very disciplined. And so people would say, well, because of this broadening understanding of God, there is a decline in the moral values of society. This might not sound familiar to anybody, but because there is a broadening view of God, there is a decline in the moral values of society. So what we need is we need to have a group of people who are trying to bring society back to this understanding of God that really invites us into disciplined pursuit of holiness, of Christian living. That was called pietism, pietism, so you have the deists and the pietists, okay, and pietism really started in Germany from the Reformation, um, but it made its way into England. And one of the things that it birthed was, were societies, these little pockets of people within the church um, who were trying to make change um, through the ways that they were living. And one of the more famous of the societies was the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge or the SPCK, the SPCK. Now, one of the foundational beliefs of the SPCK was that transformation did not happen in great, big, broad brushstrokes, but that transformation happened one individual at a time, that it happened with one life being transformed at a time. Now, I'll tell you that John Wesley came to hold this value very tightly. Okay, his dad, um, Samuel Wesley, was very big in the, Methodist, in the uh, Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge, the SPCK. So Wesley grew up with this around him. And even our mission statement in the United Methodist Church, making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That's a great big mission for the transformation of the world. But it's rooted in an understanding of discipleship that has relationship as its foundation. So we believe that the transformation of the world happens one person at a time. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. You know, Jesus, when he began his ministry, while he touched thousands of people throughout his ministry, he did not invite thousands of people to come alongside him and live alongside him. He invited 12. He invited 12. We, you know, we believe that this happens one at a time in small and faithful groups. And so Wesley really caught on to this and it started with himself. And. don't get it wrong, Wesley was very well educated, he studied at, Ho- at Oxford, he, you know, he would go on to become ordained in the church and be appointed as a fellow at Oxford University, which meant he got to teach and to tutor students, and it also meant that he wasn't, um, he wasn't bound by a single church parish, so you know, he, he mentored the students there. And he really began with himself. He started living into this very disciplined lifestyle. He would call it his, you know, pursuit of holiness. And what happened was his younger brother Charles, Charles Wesley, many of us um, might have heard of Charles Wesley. He's written many, many hymns, one of the most prolific hymn writers um, of his generation. His younger brother Charles noticed this about John. And so when Charles got to Oxford, he asked John, he said, John, I've seen what you've been doing in your life. Would you come and lead me and some of my friends in leading that same lifestyle? And it started out as a very modest group, and, and John Wesley would, would later write about how, it, even at that point, he really didn't see it about, like, as something about the rest of the people in the room. He just saw it as he was going to come into a room and just continue to do what he was doing, and other people, they could tag along if they wanted, or they didn't have to. But it was really simple, and it was a sincere conviction to pursue holiness. And thus, the Holy Club was born. The Holy Club, the famous Oxford Holy Club. Let me tell you a little bit about the Holy Club. They fasted twice a week until 3 p.m. on Wednesdays and Fridays. They received Holy Communion every single week. Now that might not seem really crazy right now, but back then that would have been a really crazy thought. You know, like kind of like the real high church churches would be once a month, maybe, for communion. This was not a weekly thing. Many churches would offer communion once a year on Easter. So so, if you were doing communion each and every week, I mean, people started to take notice. They would receive communion every week. They discussed um, the New Testament, specifically the Greek New Testament. You know, was, They were sitting there reading that. Um, and then, about a year later, they started to visit. They did visitation ministry. Now, if you've ever you know, been to United Methodist churches all over the place, you will know that visitation ministry is like one of the most fundamental things we do, even in this church, it's not just the pastors who go and make visits. We have lay people across our church family who go and visit shut-ins and people in the hospital and people who are in prison. Like it's really foundational to who we are. Well, it got started here. It got started here because Wesley said, we can't just be doing this for ourselves now. This should, this should cause us, you know, bring us to action. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like visiting, visiting the sick, visiting the homebound. All of those things. So they had a rigorous schedule of visitation. And people started to notice. And actually, when people noticed, they mocked them. They mocked them. They called them names. One of the names they called them was Methodist. Methodist. That's right. And while Wesley couldn't stand the term at the beginning, um, he later came to find it rather endearing. Um, And so he kind of just like latched onto it and said, All right, let's go. Um, We're Methodists now. But the entire time, it was from a desire to have his own life transformed, to have his own life transformed by the gospel, and to do so in a way where maybe others would experience some of the same transformation. It was very simple and sincere. Simple and sincere, just a group of friends mutually encouraging one another in Christian discipleship. Now, I'll say that oftentimes these movements bring about change. And it did start to bring about change um, in the church. And it brought change in such a way that, that people took notice and it became difficult. Um, for those who were part of this holy club to continue being a part of this holy club. But one of the things that I love about you know really the, the foundation and formation of, of this group of people that would eventually be the people called Methodists is that they really believed in their church. They believed in their church and they wanted to stick it out, they wanted to transform the church that they were currently in, not to, not to go about and, and, and do anything new, but to really see how God could do something incredible right in their midst through them. And it, it brings me back to this teaching from Jesus who, remember, this, this chapter five of Matthew, this is one of the first things Jesus does. It's one of the first things Jesus says to the people is, don't get it twisted. I am not here to all of a sudden negate all of the teaching that you've heard to this point. I am not here to do away with that. I'm here to be the fulfillment of it. That's what Jesus said. I'm here to be the fulfillment of it. That went on. We read from um, the book of Acts, uh, uh, the scripture reading that we read just before this one, was from the Council of Jerusalem. And it was this great debate as to whether or not Gentiles should be required, male Gentiles should be required to be circumcised to be Christian. You might imagine some people had a problem with that. And so that was a real stumbling block to the faith for many people. However, they came together, they talked, they discussed, and they decided that they could welcome the Gentiles in without giving them this incredible like, priority that they would have to do. But Paul didn't say, all right, well, y'all aren't listening to me, so I'm going to go do my own thing over here. No, he sat, he went, he talked to the leaders, they worked it out, they came to a conclusion that worked for them, and they moved on, they moved on. Oftentimes, if it is a movement of God, I believe we will be pushed to reform what is, instead of dividing to create our own new thing. Now, for Wesley, the goal was never, never a new denomination. He died an Anglican priest. Okay, it was never a new denomination. The reason we have a Methodist church in America and not an Anglican church is because at some point, the people in America decided they didn't like England very much. Okay? Okay. So it wasn't, it wasn't popular to be part of the Church of England in America, right? Um, so you needed, you needed something else, and, and that's really the way that that happened. But his desire, his desire was to bring about reformation in what he was engaged in. He really saw it as part of his family. It was his heart. It was his soul. Now, I'll say that that kind of work is a lot harder than just starting your own new thing. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, um, the grass is greener on the other side. Um, My dad had a phrase that he liked to use with me, and and I I mean, I still hold it to this day. The grass is greener where you water it. (laughs) That's wisdom. The grass is greener where you water it. It's easy to cut and run. It's harder to stay. It's harder to stay and say that this matters to me, that this is important to me. This is what Jesus was about. This is what we see Paul was about throughout Scripture, and it's what Wesley was about. One of the greatest gifts we have, as I've said, is the witness of our ancestors. Um, The witness of Wesley, of the church. You heard a little bit about this... um, this holy club today. Next week, I pray you come back. Um, A former pastor of this church, Pastor Chris Williams is gonna be here. She's gonna preach to us about Susanna Wesley and how um, Methodism really started through her. But as we enter into this series on on a movement um, and on a movement of God, it it just has um, these questions going in my mind. Um, If God was calling you to be a part of a movement, how would you respond? If God was calling you to be part of a movement, to be part of something bigger than yourself, how would you respond? Um, what might it look like? What might God ask of you? What role might you play? What might it cost you? Would you take part in it even if you felt like it might fail? Or that you might experience rejection? One of the great truths of today is that we believe God is still um, doing great things, making movements happen, movements, um, doing extraordinary things through, through the ordinary, um, through, through ordinary people. And one of the great blessings that we have in the church is, is we get to see this happen all the time. Um, and and one, of, one of those things is happening this week. We talked about it a little bit earlier. Um, Vacation Bible School is coming up this week. And, and we have had an incredible response. We've got over 400 kids who are going to be a part of this. We've got over 175 adults and youth leaders who are going to be a part of this. And one thing that we wanted to do, um, especially as we talk about movements and especially as we talk about, you know, Wesley, we, we talk about him in these great and lofty ways, but he was just a, a normal human being hearing a call from God and saying yes. And, and that's no different than the people who heard a call from God to be part of this ministry with us and who said yes to that. And, and we want to pray over them. And so um, I'm going to ask at this time, if you um, have, are going to be a part of or have been a part of um, VBS, either getting it ready for this year, um, making things to prepare for VBS this year, you're going to be a leader to some degree this year, you're going to be a child participating, you're going to be a youth leading. Anybody who's had any or is doing anything with Vacation Bible School this year, I'm going to ask you to come up here so that we can pray for you. And I know you're in here. I'm looking at you. So, so just come on up. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Praise the Lord. I'm going to invite you to face the congregation. That's right. Choir, the, all of you two, you know, Everybody. Um, I give thanks. I give thanks for our children. I, I give thanks for our volunteers. But if you, know, if, you want, if you want the sermon right in front of you without having to hear anything, here it is. Here it is. Um, God moves and does extraordinary things through ordinary people like you and like me who hear a call from God, who hear conviction um, to serve, to be a part of something, and who say yes. And so I'm going to invite us to extend a hand of blessing over, over these wonderful people and we're going to pray a prayer over them. Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on these, your servants. Lord, I give you thanks for the ways that they love you, for the ways that they love this church, for the ways that they will love on our children, that they will share your gospel with them, for the ways that they will experience that sharing of your gospel. Almighty God, I pray that they would be hollow bodies for your spirit to flow through that when people come to this place and when they engage them, Lord, that they would engage you. When they see them, they would see you. When they experience them, they would experience you. When they hear them, they would hear you. Lord, all of this is only possible through you. And so I give you thanks for your great goodness, and I give you thanks for each one of these individuals and those who aren't here, who weren't able to be here this morning, but who will be here tonight and tomorrow to serve our children. We give you thanks and praise in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Let's give them some thanks for what they're doing. Y'all can go back.